Hi, this is Nancy Herald, and welcome to my show, High Road to Humanity. In every episode, I tell you powerful true stories filled with great wisdom that you can use in your own life as you strive for a higher road to travel. My featured guests will have their own unique stories to tell that enlighten your mind and your soul. So kick back, relax, and learn the secret to success when you take the high road. Hi, it's Nancy Yerald, and this is High Road to Humanity. And today I have an interesting guest. He's been with us before. Brett Schreiber is here today, and we're going to talk about music, and we're going to talk about Jimi Hendrix, which is really exciting for me. So I'm really happy to have him on the show today. But before I bring him on, I want you guys to sit back and relax, and I'm going to tell you what's going on with humanity. And I pulled a couple things off the internet this morning. And here we are again, Georgia's Senate runoff winners may not be known tonight, it says. So I pulled this off of Fox News. It said, could be deja vu in Georgia as the state on Tuesday holds the twin Senate runoff elections that will determine if the Republicans will keep their majority in the chamber or if the Democrats control both houses of Congress as well as the White House. This is a big deal, you guys. So two months after the presidential election results in Georgia and a handful of other key battleground states went into overtime with the races not called in some cases until four days after the election. And we're all aware of that. So there's a good chance it could happen again. So they say we can expect a very, very close election. Veteran uh, Georgia-based GOP consultant Chip Lake told Fox News as an election that might be so close that we might not know who won those races on Tuesday night. It could be a few days until all the votes are counted. So everybody's going to be watching for that. And even though we're recording this today, um, it may take a couple days. So now for some good news. And and I don't consider that bad or good. It's just kind of, you know, in the middle there. But some good news. A woman saves family from fire and it was all caught on the family's ring camera. Now, listen to this. This just happened. A woman in Avondale, Arizona, is being hailed as a hero after rescuing the family next door from a house fire. It was all caught on video from the house's ring doorbell camera. This is so cool that people have these. So Carolyn Polish said she was getting ready on the morning of January 1st when she saw smoke coming out of the neighbor's home inside the house. Nicole um, Sagato, her husband, David, and their four children. All I could think was the kid of the kids, um, said Polish. So Polish kept banging on the door until the family of six got out safely. Every minute mattered. Police said the roof collapsed. Check this out. Minutes later and the family of six would have wouldn't have made it if it weren't for their neighbor so from that morning forward they become much more than just next door neighbor she's family she's going to be a part of our lives forever you know and she saved our lives said salag Salgado. So that is so awesome. You know, there's still nice people out there who look out for their neighbors and that's kind of a big deal. So, and that's why we do this show. Talk about doing stuff for others. Talk about what you can do for your fellow man. Okay. So Brad Schreiber's here and, you know, he's got quite the background. I mean, he's worked as a writer in all of media, as well as a producer, executive director, and an actor. Um, He has a book out that's music is power. Now he's been on the show before with that book and his book uh, revolutions End was honored by the international book awards and independent publisher book awards. Now becoming Jimi Hendrix, which is what we're going to talk about today um, is an early year biography. And it was called fascinating by the new 
New York Times and selected for inclusion in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Library. He created the TV series North Mission Road, which ran for six seasons based on his history of the L.A. Corner Death in Paradise. Uh, he has many other books out there. Uh, he has so many awards, you guys. It just goes on. I mean, this guy is amazing, and I'm so glad you're here today, Brad. Welcome to High Road to Humanity. Thank you very much, Nancy. It's great to be back with you again and talk about the spiritual side of Jimi Hendrix. Well, yeah, because he was spiritual, wasn't he? He was, and I didn't know that. I loved his music as a child and became entranced in his life when I was asked to write the book. Oh, so you were asked to write the book. Okay, okay. All right. Yeah, Steve Roby was a historian who had an agent in New York and had all this raw material and didn't know how to write. And I said, I'd love to split it 50-50 with you. And then I became aware of this deep compassion in Jimmy's life and the hardships also of his early childhood. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're going to talk about that today. And, you know, um, I just want to say that I was shocked when I read it. I didn't realize that he had such a horrible childhood. I mean, he was really, he was neglected. He was a neglected child. Absolutely. You know, there were a number of children in the Hendricks family who were given up into the foster system. So that was hard on Jimmy, who was the oldest, who developed a rapport with kids, his, his siblings, and then they're taken away. He was responsible, by the way, Nancy, for raising his little brother, Leon. Right. And sometimes the house that they grew up in Seattle, the father didn't have enough money to pay for electricity or there was nothing to eat. And these two boys, the Hendricks boys, would walk the neighborhood and people would look out for them and say, hey, did you eat today? Come in here. I'm going to make you something. Isn't that crazy? So they relied on, yeah, they relied on the largesse. Mm-hmm. and kindness of other people to get by because the father didn't even have a high school education and mostly made his living, Nancy, doing gardening. Okay. All right. Well, you know, and let me back up and say, I was, I, you talk about his mother, Lucille, in the book, and she was very young when she married his father, Al. Um, Al went off to the military and she was kind of a wild child, right? She was uh, kind of a drinker and a wild child from what I understand. Yeah, they, they both were drinkers and Lucille especially was, um, she was pretty wild. And there's a question that probably will never be answered as to whether Jimmy and Leon have different fathers because they oh. look differently in their skin tone. Leon himself, when I interviewed him, he lives here in Los Angeles as oh, well. he does, okay. Said, said, I think that my mom was with some other guy and that's how I came along. Jimmy looks very different from me. They um, were very close. Leon and Jimmy were very close. He took care of Leon, like you said. And um, I, at one point, I read in the book, and I thought this was crazy, that Leon was put into foster care. And Jimmy was older, so he wasn't put in. That's true. And as you also mentioned when we were writing back to each other, yeah, sometimes they would hide in the house when they saw the people from the Seattle foster community come to interview them. They would hide out so that they wouldn't have to, you know, deal with another child being taken away. Mm -hmm. It was, it was Dickensian in its poverty 
And it had a, an imprint on Jimmy who became a very trusting and gypsy-like character because he was used to wondering, where am I going to eat today? How am I going to get by? Right. Well, what really surprised me is he he developed a stutter because of all of the trauma that he had experienced, you know, in his childhood. And I guess what from his mother and father fighting, I don't know what Leon told you, but or if he even knew, but is that what's suspected that that's why he developed a stutter? I think you're right that it came from the insecurity of the home. And one of the things that moved me the most is Jimmy so wanted to play guitar, even when he was very young and didn't know how to, mm-hmm. that, you know, we would carry a broom around and pretend that he was playing it. Um, he, he got an old guitar that had one string on it. Yeah. And he would take, he would take it to school and hold it to his body in terms of security. And the teacher talked to Al Hendricks, his father, and said, I think this child needs, you know, more attention because he needs this kind of security. And that's mm-hmm. why he's bringing a guitar to school and it's totally inappropriate. Well, but interestingly, I, well, you know, Jimmy, just this last thought, Nancy, on no, that no. is Jimmy, Jimmy was so insecure for so long that he used to fall asleep with a guitar on his chest. He constantly oh played God. it. He, it was some kind of substitute for Lucille not being there in his life. Right. Well, no. And and I just was going to bring up what you wrote in the book, which I thought was so profound. Um, you say about 1955, Jimmy's looking for music in the radio. He took the radio apart. He was looking for the music. I mean, isn't that yeah. profound? I, that just blew me away. I was like, whoa. So what I think, I'm going to tell you what I think intuitively, I feel like, yeah, yeah. I feel like, you know, as we're talking about this, you know, nobody does that unless the music, you know, he was looking for the music. He had to have been musical before, I don't know, I believe in past lives. And he came into this life and he knew that the music would soothe him. That's what soothed him. And I say this because, and there's a reason that I, I believe this. I believe music is healing. I believe music mm-hmm. heals people. And he, I think he picked up intuitively that that music would heal him. What do you think? I agree completely. The healing properties of music, you know, go back to Pythagoras and the ancient Greeks and Mm -hmm. their belief in the music of the spheres, which was, you know, a theory of Pythagoras. But you don't even have to go back that far to understand that Jimmy was fascinated by sound. In fact, when he was working with some bands early on in Seattle when he was a teenager, he once busted the cone inside of a speaker. And so it had that rattle sound. The cone was torn, right? And he loved it. And he was like playing and getting these gnarly sounds. And the other guys in the band didn't get it. They were going, what are you using that speaker for? It's ruined. And he said, it's not ruined. Listen to the tone of it. You could never get that tone otherwise. That's how far advanced he was in trying to get sound. Wow, that's crazy. Was was Leon musical too? You didn't see anything in the book. And I just was curious. Leon is, is very much a um, musical. He's um, had his own band. But what Leon also got in terms of talent is art. He's an excellent artist. He does silk screening. He's done a lot of silk screening of shirts and other items that have Jimmy's likeness. And Jimmy encouraged him to draw. Okay. And Leon eventually got a scholarship to do technical work at Lockheed, which, of course, is 
based in Seattle. So Leon both got the musical and also the artistic line. And I wonder if that comes from the mother or the father. I wonder who was artistic, where they where they got that. Well, well, I would say Al, of course, didn't have a great education. Right. But he was hired around Seattle, not only to do gardening, but to do arrangement. He'd carry big stones and create sort of patterns in people's gardens. So he... He had something of an artistic man. Okay. But he was also very suspicious of, of uh, Jimmy and his music. Literally, Al Hendricks thought that being left-handed was a sign of the devil. Oh, seriously? No. Yeah. Sometimes Jimmy, Jimmy would be playing because Jimmy was, was left-handed. Okay. And when he heard his father coming into the house, he would flip the guitar without changing the strings and start playing right-handed. <laughs> because his father said being left-handed was a sign of the devil. So he was ambidextrous. He could do both. He could play with both hands that way. That's crazy. Not only that, our musicians will tell you, Nancy, that if you flip over a guitar, you have to rethink the music in reverse because the strings are different. And yet Jimmy oh had that gosh. talent. He really, was, he really was a genius. Wow. You know, that is just amazing. Now, how old was he approximately when he started playing? You said he was a teenager when he started playing with bands in Seattle. And then I know um, after that, he went to New York. Was he in his, you know, like early 20s when he went to New York? Or or what's the timeline on that? Well, um, he was a teenager. He gigged with certain bands. Um, He was not the leader of any of those bands. Okay. One of the one of the issues that I talk about, excuse me. <clears throat> one of the issues I talk about in becoming Jimi Hendrix is that he didn't know how to write his own songs for the longest time. Mm. And later on, when we get to New York, we'll find out that he had a woman who inspired him right. to finally write. Okay. But he was playing rhythm guitar sometimes in in Seattle bands, and you know, 17, 18 years old. Then he got caught joyriding in a stolen car. Oh, okay. And a second time it happened. He didn't steal it, but he was in the car. And the judge said, well, Mr. Hendricks, you have a second offense. We'll give you two choices. You either go to jail or you join the army. Right. And Jimmy had seen a friend of his wearing um, a Screaming Eagles patch on his arm, 101st Airborne. Right. And he thought, okay. That looked kind of cool. I'll go to Fort Campbell, Kentucky and be a paratrooper. Oh, my God. He was not ready. (laughs) Hey, listen, we'll talk about more about him in the Army when we get back from commercial break. Hey, you guys, I'm here today with Brad Shriver. We're talking about Jimi Hendrix. He wrote a fabulous book, you guys. Um, I should have it in my hand. I ordered it. I have to say, with the way the world is, I didn't get it in time, Amazon. <laughs> so, But I know you can pick it up at Amazon, you guys. Um, it's Jimi Hendrix, The Early Years. It's called Becoming Jimi Hendrix. It's a it's a biography, and it's really awesome. This is Nancy Yearout. You guys, we'll be right back. This is Highway to the Hang on. We have more stories to tell on High Road to Humanity. Check out Nancy's website, nancyyearout.com, to book a session with Nancy to learn how to tap into your own abilities. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed a miracle? 
I think most of us probably have. Whether it's a financial emergency, health crisis, or some other serious situation, most of us know the feeling of helplessness and even hopelessness. Now imagine having to wait for a miracle for six months, even a year or more. That's the situation for thousands of children all around the world who are waiting for a sponsor. Their only hope of escaping the poverty around them is someone like you choosing them. This is Nancy Yearout, and I'm joining with compassion to give you the chance to be the miracle in a child's life. For a little more than a dollar a day, you'll provide the physical, emotional, and spiritual support a child needs, not just to survive poverty, but to be released from poverty in Jesus' name. Don't make a child wait one day longer for their miracle. You can find out more or sponsor a child right now. Just go to my website, nancyyearout.com. That's www.nancyyearout.com. We want to thank you so much for listening to High Road to Humanity. This is where Nancy and her guests tell stories that will guide you and enlighten your mind and soul. Now, welcome back to the High Road. Hey, it's Nancy Earout. It's High Road to Humanity. I'm here today with Brad Schreiber. We're talking about Jimi Hendrix. Hey, sorry I didn't get your book in time. I feel so bad. It's really cool. I ordered it. Watch it come today, huh, Brad? <laughs> That's, that's fine. I'm very happy to talk about him. Well, I read it off my iPad, but you know, I, I like having your book because I like to hold it up and show the audience. And the reason I'm saying this is the cover is really cool. Um, it's done in black and white and uh, it bugs me that I don't have it to hold it up, but you guys got to pick it up. And um, do you have a website or anything that you should give people? Absolutely. Well, it's my name, bradschreiber.com, S-C-H-R-E-I-B-E-R.com. And I have a page in there where I list all the books, links to Amazon, but I want to give the visitors a nice experience. So I have a lot of video and I have a lot of audio so that they can kind of bounce around and learn more about the books. That's awesome. Thank you for saying that. So tell us what happened when he went into the army. I mean, it was in the fifties. I mean, how did he do? He went to boot camp. Where, where did he go to boot camp again? Was it George? Fort, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, Kentucky, which okay. is close to, close to Nashville, yeah. which is interesting yeah. um, because it shaped his, it shaped his future. Anyway, he was a terrible paratrooper. Um, he didn't jump out of planes in training and he wrote that he loved the whooshing sounds of the hair going by his head. <laughs> so he was a guy who always explored sounds, but he was a terrible rifleman. Um, he was written up many, many times. Sometimes he'd go and play a gig in Clarksville, a small town nearby. He'd miss bed check. Mm. Eventually he claimed that he injured his foot in a paratrooper jump. It wasn't true. He just wanted out. And uh, basically the officer said, you know what? This Hendrix guy is nothing but trouble. Let's just give him an honorable discharge. Oh, they gave her honorable. Okay, cool. (laughs) I didn't know that. Yeah. Awesome. And then he, with his friend Billy Cox, who was a bass player and knew him all his life, 
started um, exploring small bands until they got to Nashville. Okay. And then everything changed. Because in Nashville, you had to be great to make it in those clubs. There were some of the best guitarists in, in the United States in Nashville in late 50s, early 60s. Mm -hmm. So uh, he really, I think exponentially, he learned a lot from Nashville. Okay. How long was he there? And you say he played in the clubs there. How long, how many years did he play in the clubs before he took he off just, to New York? Well, I, I don't have the exact number because, because this book was written a while ago, but I believe it was a couple of years and he was part of the house band of a club called uh, the club Morocco. Gotcha. And, uh, and they basically kept the players down the street upstairs above, um, a beauty salon. Okay. And then when they were going to play the gig, they'd walk down the street and perform at the club. What it, they didn't have enough money to ever leave. It was oh. kind of indentured servitude. Okay. Um, so one day, um, a black man who claimed to be um, a promoter saw Jimmy and said, listen, you're too good for this place. Why don't you come with me back to New York and we'll find you a band. Right. And Jimmy, again, the gypsy who was born into poverty and trusted all kinds of people to help him, immediately said yes and left everybody. And that's how he got to New York. But that Turned was out smart, right? Was, well, no? yes and no. Okay. <laughs> See, what happened? Because <laughs> the guy was a female impersonator. Oh, get out of here. Are you serious? And and Jimmy didn't know it. So Gosh. they take a bus to New York City. They're staying in the guy's apartment. And the guy is attracted to Jimmy. Oh, So he's no. making the move on Jimmy. And Jimmy's going, uh, no, sorry, I'm not interested. Takes his little bag, leaves, and he's literally in New York City and knows no one. Oh, my That's gosh. How, how, got this how did you know this story? I mean, how did you find this out? Did Leon tell you? Or how did you, how did you discover this happened? We, between Steve Roby and myself, we interviewed over 120 people. Wow. Some of those interviews were so wonderful. I personally got to interview Richie Havens, um, the marvelous performer, singer, songwriter. Wow. Um, it, it was so much fun. And both here in the States and people in the UK, because when Jimmy got to the UK, as we'll talk later, right. pow, all the stuff that wasn't happening for him, all the frustrations, all the setbacks, boom. It just happened in three months. Wow. It was amazing. So he's in New York. All right, so take us back. So here we are. He's in New York. He finds out this person is not who he thought they were, <laughs> to, to put it mildly. Well, at least he got to New York, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? So what did he do then? What happened? There were so many characters in Harlem. So the next person who had an impact on Jimmy's life was a woman named Litha Fane. Bridget. Mm -hmm. And she was a black woman who was very attractive, older than Jimmy, of course. And she knew a lot of the stars in R&B in Harlem. And she saw Jimmy play and she thought, this guy's amazing. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to help him out. Um, but before that happened, Jimmy found out that living with lithophane was not exactly the way he expected things either. Because lithophane, I don't want to use the term groupie because it sounds very cruel, but lithophane 
knew a lot of people who were involved in sexual situations. Mm. And Jimi Hendrix, from a guy who was a female impersonator, wound up living with a woman who would go to these little orgies with people oh. in the music industry. Okay. So that was kind of wild. Um, Lithophane knew Etta James, the great singer. Oh, wow. And introduced uh, him to, she was just trying to help him get started. Mm -hmm. But the people, the people in Harlem, when they heard Jimmy play, it sounded like noise to them. Oh. One of, one of the quotes, we have a quote from one of the club owners in Harlem. Mm -hmm. He listened to Jimmy play a song and it had that controlled feedback that we know Jimmy did. And the club owner said, you can just pack up all that noise and take it downtown, which meant basically going down Manhattan into Greenwich Village yeah. because they wanted the smooth sound. They didn't want anything that was really wild rock and roll. Right. And this is like 63, 64. And so Jimmy's still trying to find himself. And remember, he's not writing songs. So how can he establish himself? I see. I see. Wow. Yeah. So what happened? I mean, how did he how did he get to London from New York? I mean, did it start when he left New York or, or how how did this how did this occur? There's there are a couple of stories and I know you have to have some breaks in here. So let You let got me 4 minutes, that, Brad. <laughs> oh, you got 4 minutes. I'm going to give you the full story of how <laughs> Jimmy got connected to okay. go to New York next break because it's completely oh, okay. insane. Okay, it's completely but I will tell you, I will okay. tell you that for a while. Okay. He's living in cheap hotels. Right. And the Isley brothers loved his music. Really? And yeah. he he took a bus to where they lived. They lived in Long Island. Okay. And they lived with their mom. Um, Mama Isley would cook up food and when the guys were in town they would stay with their mom and then they'd be on the road. And Jimmy auditioned for them and they went, oh my God, this guy is unbelievable. And they offered him on the spot a place in their band. Okay. And he said, absolutely. He said, absolutely. Let me just go back to my hotel and get the rest of my stuff. And he did not have the money to take the bus trip. That's how close to the bone Jimi Hendrix was living. He asked for money from the Isleys just to go back to Manhattan to get and then stuff. live with them. Wow. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Wow. That's really sad to, to, you know, it's probably what made him his humbleness, I guess I have to say, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, probably had a big impact, I think, on his music because the music was a reflection of him. I mean, the music was a reflection of his soul, in my opinion. So. That's how I look at things. I agree with you completely. He, yeah. And his songs, just to talk about it briefly, his songs often talked about, well, Are You Experienced was the first album. And that song literally said, yeah, you can take drugs in order to have an altered state of consciousness. But the whole world doesn't need to take drugs, but they need to elevate their consciousness mm -hmm. to understand our connection to other people and to the rest of the world if the world's going to get any better. And I thought that that was remarkable in an era of psychedelic music that someone would say, it's not all about drugs. Mm -mm. How are you going to be a better person? 
it starts that way. And that means you're experienced. And, and you I think, he, yeah, and I love that. And you think he got, he, he became that person over time from all the experiences that he had to come to that realization. Cause some people never get it. You know what I'm saying, Brad? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think not only the hardship of his life, but then when he was on his own, he had to ask people for favors. He didn't have money, didn't have food to eat. And he, he could be very charming. And he was very funny. He do <laughs> odd little voices and and charm people, and it's something that he learned to do in order to survive. To survive, it so was that a when survival. He, yeah. So when he became successful, he shared it with everyone. That's he shared awesome. his money and his time with all kinds of people. All right, we'll talk about that when we come back. Hey, you guys, I'm here today with Brad Scheiber. We're talking about Jimi Hendrix, um, the book that he has out. If you want to go on to Amazon and check it out, it's called Becoming Jimi Hendrix. It's an early year biography. This is Nancy Earle. This is High Road to Humanity, and we will be right back. Hang on. We have more stories to tell on High Road to Humanity. Check out Nancy's website, nancyyearout.com, to book your first 30-minute coaching session for free to get you on your high road. Do you struggle with knowing the right food for your lifestyle? Is there really a one right way to eat? As a chronic dieter, I was always so confused by the food rules and the fad diets. Where to even start? That's why I decided to go into health coaching. As your health coach, I will help you find the solution that is right for you. I will help you find balance. Unlike most dietitians and nutritionists, I focus on a whole person approach, not just food. I address stress, sleep patterns, underlying root issues, and so many other contributing factors to health. And as a mental illness survivor, I love talking about ways to fire up brain health. If you're interested in learning more and maybe even a complimentary consultation, contact me at www.sparkingwholeness.com or message me on Instagram through the handle sparkingwholeness. And now let's get back to the show. We will be right back on High Road to Humanity. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, or download directly from Nancy's website, nancyyearout.com, so you never miss an episode of The High Road. Hi, it's Nancy Yearout, and this is High Road to Humanity. Hey, I do need to promote myself a little bit. I, I don't do it as much as I should, but um, I'm doing psychic readings again, and I'm pretty darn good psychic, you guys. So if you need a reading, go to my website, nancyyearout.com, and just book with me there. Um, if you want to email me, you can, nancy at high road to humanity, and I'll get with you. Let me know whether you want a 30 minute or an hour reading. Also, one more thing I need to tell you, I've been working really, really hard on my business 
classes. They're intuitive business classes. Okay. So I'm going to teach you guys, and it's a five-week program, how to use your intuition in business to create a prosperous, happy, fulfilling business and a good personal life too. So it's a twofer. Um, go on to my website again, nancyyearout.com. Intuitive business practices is what it's called. And I'm really excited about it. It's all kinds of cool stuff I learned in real estate um, in order to be successful in business. And I'm sharing it with you guys. So sign up. All right. <laughs> so here we're back with Brad. Hey, um, you were talking and, and I don't want to rewind too much, but when did he start? I mean, when did Jimmy start um, the writing? I mean, how did that all come into play? Tell us that portion of it. Mm -hmm. No, you're perfectly leading up to the next step in Jimmy's evolution, Nancy. Okay. Um, I've, I've written both a screenplay and the book to a musical that I'm um, working on marketing. Oh, wow. That, that, about, that it's about the triangle between Jimmy, Lithophane Pritchin, who loved his blues. By the way, Jimmy was an amazing blues guitarist. Mm -hmm. And um, a woman, Linda Keith, a white female model from London who was staying in New York. She was Keith Richards' girlfriend okay. from the Rolling Stone. And as soon as she saw Jimmy at the Cafe Wa in Greenwich Village, it was just, oh, my God, I'm in love with this guy and people have to hear him. Interestingly, the first night that Linda and Jimmy spent together, he had never taken LSD, oh. and LSD was still legal in the early part of 1966. Okay. So I'll show you how naive Jimmy was. He said to him, would you like to take some acid with me? And Jimmy hesitated and said, uh, I don't know about that acid, but I sure would like to try some LSD. I <laughs> didn't know that's what that was. You know, it's the same thing. Yeah. And yeah. as soon as he took it, it so expanded his his head and and all of a sudden he started writing. Now I'm not saying that LSD oh, is the wow. only reason I didn't that know he that. started writing songs. It was Linda Keith who deserves a lot of, of the attention and respect because she said to him, you're so great and you have all these ideas, if you want your own band and you don't want to be, you know, up there with little Richard doing all of little Richard's moves because he toured with him, mm -hmm. write songs. Mm -hmm. I'll encourage you. I know mm -hmm. you can do it. And she was the unsung heroine, if you will, in Jimmy's evolution. Wow. She got him to start writing songs. And that's when he eventually put together a band at the Cafe Wall in Greenwich Village. Okay. So Linda Keith, and in the meantime, he was still seeing a lot of other women and um, especially Lithophane who was saying, don't write this weird psychedelic stuff. You are an R&B master. This is what you should do. And he was trying to figure out what direction to go in. Right. It's fascinating and complex too. Now, were you able to interview her, Linda? Um. We had interviews from her. She was very private. Steve was very good friends with Lithophane, who lives out in Las Vegas, and he interviewed her a couple of times. And we got information about Jimmy that no one's ever published before. Wow. And uh, she was very open about talking about her sexuality when Jimmy and she first hooked up. And um, But this is a guy who was living hand to mouth, literally... Lithophane and Jimmy slept on the floor 
of Etta James' dressing room when she was doing gigs because they didn't have a place to live. It's it's just beyond that somebody that talented had that hard of a start. Right. When did he finally start to make some money? He actually started to make some money when um, the the I guess the first single that he released, Hey Joe, um, was recorded in London and then sent to um, reprise at Warner Brothers down here in Burbank. Okay. So all of a sudden he's got a single, single does well, Are You Experienced comes out. But I got to tell you, this is my favorite little thing about Jimmy Sonically. What? His guitar work was so far beyond everyone else in rock and roll that the London engineer who sent the tape to Warner Brothers in Burbank wrote on the outside of the tape box, deliberate distortion, do not correct. <laughs> because he, he knew that, that people in, in the music industry in Los Angeles in 1966 would go, well, that's a weird tone. We've got to clean that up. Yeah. They didn't even understand what he was doing. Right. And then, of course, to this day, while there are tons of really great guitarists, and they have mastered feedback. It it all goes back to Jimmy and the stuff he did in 1967. Wow. That album came out and people went, I can't believe Third Stone from the Sun or Are You Experienced? Mm -hmm. Lyrics as well. Fascinated by science fiction and so forth. Right. Well, let me rewind a little. How did he go? How did he make it to London? Oh, this is crazy. Okay. So Linda Keith again, Linda Keith again is responsible. There was a group called the Animals, you might recall. Oh yeah, them. I do. Okay. So basically the bass player of the Animals knew Linda and, and um, bumped into her, said, what's going on? I'm going to leave the Animals and be a producer. Um, and she said, oh, you've got to see the, this guy, Jimi Hendrix. So they get in the Cafe Wa and um, they hear Jimmy playing his version of Hey Joe. Oh, okay. Which, which was the version that the producer wanted to, he basically wanted to do the same song. Yeah. And so he brought in another manager. They got him into the UK on a visa, um, a work visa, which was very difficult at that time. So Jimmy and got work visa to go playing gigs and everyone to London. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And all of a sudden everyone was talking about him. Um, the Rolling Stones, a couple oh. of the Beatles, wow. um, Eric Burden, yeah. um, Eric Clapton. Yeah. It was just phenomenal. So people said, this guy is beyond and let's go see him again. And all of a sudden, he within he went to, he, he got a tour together. He went to France. He went to Scandinavia, came back to London. And within three months, he was ready. And then, of course, the breakthrough in America was, you know, the 1967 concert in Monterey. Okay. In Monterey Pop, where America got to know him as well as, the amazing Janis Joplin, yeah, all right? these other acts. So yeah. that was a very, very important concert historically. Right. And it, it introduced Jimmy to America. Right. 
That's crazy. Well, you know, and I, I think um, there's a lot of film and stuff from Woodstock when he was there. Um, this is amazing. I mean, I've seen some of those in um, Janis Joplin too. You know, you go back and watch some of that stuff and it's just, and then I don't even think in your opinion, my opinion, I'll just tell you, I don't think he knew how good he was for a long time. That, that could well be. That's an interesting observation. Because yeah. you talked earlier about his humility. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he practiced all the time. He worked really hard. Um, he was open to all kinds of music. Um, maybe he thought he was good, but in some ways, why didn't he start writing if he thought he was good? It took Linda Keith. Yeah, it took someone him. to push him. Yeah. Now, what about his um, yeah. father? Did his Was his father alive to see him become successful? He was, but um, I, I'm sorry to say that Al Hendricks was not at all encouraging. Oh. Jimmy wrote postcards and kept Al aware and Leon aware mm-hmm. of where he was. Right. But um, Al Hendricks was like, well, if you can make money doing that, great. He, he was not at all enthusiastic. So he wasn't um, uh, one of his big fans. He didn't, he didn't praise him. Not at all. Okay. For this. By the time Jimmy came back to Seattle to do a show, Al was there and there were other relatives and mm-hmm. they all got back together at the house in Seattle. Right. But um, Al Hendricks never believed in, in music being a way to work. He always told Jimmy, you have to do hard work, physical work, because that's how Al got through. Gotcha. Gotcha. Hey, listen, we're going to go to commercial yeah. break. When we come back, I want you to talk about what happened to Jimmy. Um so let's talk about that. It's such a sad story because he was so talented. Hey, you guys, this is Nancy Yearout. I'm here today with Brad Schreiber. We're talking about Jimi Hendrix, and I hope you'll join us on our last segment. This is High Road to Humanity. Hang on. We have more stories to tell on High Road to Humanity. Check out Nancy's website, nancyyearout.com, to book your first 30 minutes coaching session for free to get you on your high road. Do you feel like something is missing in your life? Do you feel lost or alone? Do the things you buy for yourself lose their luster quickly? Are you searching for fulfillment within your heart and soul? What if you were given the ability to change your life for the better? To create what you want for yourself? What if I told you you have the ability to tap into the universal energy to design the life you desire? This was my discovery many years ago. As a businesswoman and a single mom, I had no choice but to pay attention to what the universe was revealing to me. And I learned how to use it for my benefit. When you wake up and pay attention to the messages that the universe is showing you, your life will change for the better. Because we all hold the ability to tap into the universal energy to enhance our love life, our career, our finances, anything you wish. This energy was created for our use, and it's free. Now, I'm excited to share this information with you in my book, Wake Up, The Universe is Speaking to You. It's available to you on my website at www.nancyyearout.com. That's N-A-N-C-Y-Y-E-A-R-O-U-T.com, Barnes & Noble, and Amazon. And thanks for picking up my book. And may the energy of the universe bless you.
join the millions of women each month who listen to Wise Health for Women Radio. Women are pressed daily to give more, learn more, and be more, often at the expense of mind, body, or spirit. Join us for revitalizing conversations on fresh ways to view your limited time, encouraging new, healthier perspectives. You provide a special spark to those around you, and you manage many roles, entrepreneur, mom, wife, coach, friend, daughter, and more. Here's a great way to inspire and nurture you. On Wise Health for Women Radio, host Linda Crater and her amazing guests share how to move toward your wishes and dreams and find what is possible in your busy life. If not today, then when? Take steps to flourish over 40. Join us on Wise Health for Women Radio, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, on iTunes, and more at wisehealthforwomenradio.com. Helping women thrive. We want to thank you so much for listening to High Road to Humanity. This is where Nancy and her guests tell stories that will guide you and enlighten your mind and soul. Now, welcome back to the High Road. Hey, it's Nancy Herald. It's High Road to Humanity. I'm here today talking about Jimi Hendrix with Brad Schreiber, the author of a wonderful book, Becoming Jimi Hendrix. You know, Brad, thanks for coming and talking about this. It's kind of a somber um ending to the to the show because you know talk about what happened there's a lot of different i guess it's controversial of what happened to jimmy so i'd love to hear your take on what happened to him well it's interesting because steve roby who uh, was the historian who i share the credit with the book on mm-hmm. he believes that jimmy overdosed and i don't believe that i believe that he was murdered and i believe he was murdered by his manager, Mike Jeffrey, who was a very questionable character. He'd been in British um, intelligence. Oh. And um, um, his father had received a note that basically said that his son was in British intelligence and had been involved in assassination squads. Um, how did Mike Jimmy, Jeffrey I'm going to stop in, you a second. How did Jimmy get hooked yeah. up with this guy? I mean, how did he become his manager? Chaz Chandler from the Animals who basically met Jimmy through Linda wanted to manage a group. And he knew Mike Jeffrey, Mike Jeffrey had a connection to the animals. So they co-managed Jimmy. Okay. But what happened was Mike Jeffrey had dosed people without their knowing with LSD because he felt that Jimmy was getting pulled away. Mike Jeffrey wanted to control Jimmy. Okay. And then Jimmy was touring Europe and getting trying to avoid Mike Jeffrey because he wanted to end his contract. Didn't trust him. So the forensic evidence that suggests that Mike Jeffrey and other parties were involved is that in, in London, the first um, doctor who saw Jimmy after he was gone looked at his shirt covered with red wine and he had aspirated red wine. It had gone into his lungs. And the doctor said, this is not a guy who took nine really powerful German sedatives when one would do and just took some wine to wash it down to kill himself. Wine was forced down his throat because some of it bypassed his stomach and went into his lungs. Now, you can imagine, How horrible. you know, people talk about conspiracies and, and stuff. Mm-hmm. 
the reason that conspiracies happen is not that everybody's involved. It's that the people who stand to get in trouble if they don't have a definitive answer cover up. And that's exactly what happened with Jimmy. The hospital got rid of John Bannister, said that he was lying and he was irresponsible, which the is doctor, not true. The doctor. The, the doctor. The physician. And the hospital okay. covered their tracks. Because what happens if Jimi Hendrix has been murdered and the London hospital goes, yeah, we don't know who did it. Um, terrible publicity for them. Mm-hmm. So... So I believe forensically that proves it. And then talking to other people for becoming Jimi Hendrix convinced me. Richie Havens, I love talking to him. Richie Havens was in Colorado. That's where his home was. I love talking with him. And he told me he saw Jimmy at the Isle of Wight and Jimmy was pale and terrified. He said, I got to get a lawyer. I got to get away from Mike Jeffrey. This guy is really dangerous and oh, I don't wow. know what he's going to do if I if I fire him, I see. Now, he knew. He knew. The last piece, the very last piece of evidence, yeah. and the thing that will make it clear in everyone's mind right. that this is not conjecture. Jimmy wanted a recording studio in Manhattan, and it was called the Electric Lady Studio, Electric Ladyland, Electric Lady Studio. Mike Jeffrey, in his stupidity, borrowed money from mob members in New York. Oh wow to build that studio. He hadn't paid them back. He was manufacturing the books and doing a lot of stuff that was illegal. Mm -hmm. If Jimmy died, there would be no more money coming in. And how would he pay back the mafia? So he was desperate. And uh, I believe that's what drove him and some other people to get into that hotel room and force those drugs and wine down Jimmy's throat. Yes, there were a lot of victims. Well, hold on a second. You didn't tell, and yeah. I don't. I just want to know. So, where was he yeah. when this? Ha- when he? I hate to talk about this so much, but where was he? What hotel was he in? Who was with him? What happened beforehand? I mean, do we know what happened leading up to the night that he was, or the evening, or however this went? He, he was with a woman. He'd been with many women, of course, in, in England because his. Rise was so meteoric, and it was with a woman called Monica Dadman, who wasn't there when he died. Um, she changed her story many times. I, I think it's obvious to see that Jeffrey and other people found him in this um, Cumberland Hotel in London. Okay. Forced her out of the room and did what they did to Jimmy, and she was terrified. Right. And why so wouldn't she be? Right. A guy who's former, think of it. You wake up with one of the most famous rock stars in the world, a guy who's former British intelligence who worked in an assassination squad tells you to get lost. And if you say anything about his being there, you're next. Yeah. So naturally she changed her story. Many times. Now, was she ever interviewed after for your book? Were you able she, to interview her or? Yeah, we, we did, but part of your responsibility as a biographer is to do research and when someone you interview gives you incorrect information, mm-hmm. you have to let them know of it. And if they say, no, 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 that's not how it happened. And you go to other sources and they go, she's wrong or she's lying. Mm-hmm. Then you, you're not gonna spend too much time talking to that source. Gotcha. Cause it's unreliable. Gotcha. Yeah. But I understand her position right. and she came, I think she came to an early end as well. She was, 
she was terrified and wow. uh, and rightly so. Now I want to ask you out of everybody you interviewed, what was the most interesting thing that you learned about Jimmy? Um, there, there were certain things that I loved. Uh, I already mentioned that he loved the rip cone in the speaker yeah. and he loved to experiment with sound. Um, how he integrated science fiction in his lyrics yeah. from the book he read as a boy, Philip Jose Farmer, uh, which related to Purple Haze. There was a purple light in a farmer book. Um, there's so many things. I just loved his, his playfulness when he was in New York. Um, Batman came on in 1966 on American television. And his drummer was a guy named Danny Casey, and they were very tight. Mm -hmm. And they lived together in, in kind of a rock and roll hotel in the village. And um, everybody was in and out of each other's rooms. But when Batman came on, whatever night of the week it was, yeah. Danny Casey and Jimmy Hendrix say, hey, everybody, out of the room. We're going to watch Batman. We got to have it quiet. So <laughs> oh we're watch God. Batman. And they'd shove everybody out of the room and they would, and they loved it. How oh, visual and funny and outrageous it was. How funny. And even when they played the Cafe Wa, they didn't have a backstage, you know, they'd stand behind some boilers, you know, off stage. Mm -hmm. And just before they'd go on, um, they had this ritual. Jimmy would turn to Danny Casey and say, are you ready, Robin? <laughs> <laughs> And Danny Casey would look back at Jimmy Hendrix and say, yes, Batman. And then they'd rush on stage and go into their first number. And they did that every night. And it just, it just gives you this little sense of, despite the tragedy we just talked about, mm -hmm. how fun and adventuresome and open-minded he was. How old was he when he died? He was part of the 27 Club that took Jim Morrison, 27. Janis Joplin, yeah. Kurt Cobain, Wow. Um, but like I say, Nancy, Gosh. he wasn't a guy who, who overdosed. He was a guy who was taken out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want people to know that. I want yeah. people to know that he, he had much more music in him. Luckily, he recorded tons. He didn't yeah. know how to notate. Okay. So he'd go in and record for hours. And that's why we still have alternate versions of songs, because he spent tons of time in the studio. How crazy! Does he ha did he father any kids? I'm I. I... Um, yeah, you know. I know that's a weird question, but it just popped into my head. It's in there. It's actually in becoming Jimi Hendrix. Is it okay? And uh, and you know you've got to be honest, no matter how much you love a person. When you are a biographer, it's the truth that matters, not mm -hmm. your what you wish had happened. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy's fatal weaknesses were, you know, women. Mm -hmm. He was a womanizer, came from not having a strong mother figure and and his rough childhood. And also he was not very good at business. Yeah. Um, he signed contracts without reading them, got into lots of trouble. Okay. So those were his fatal flaws. But but he not only was he a genius musically, he was so open to people. And he was open to musical styles and learning from anyone. He was not arrogant. Mm -hmm. He was so gifted, and yet he, he loved to listen to classical music. He, Dick Dale, the surf guitarist, he hung out with Dick Dale for an afternoon to hear how he got the twang in his guitar. Mm -hmm. This is a man who cared about music above all. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Thanks, Brad, for coming on today.
oh, I'm so glad to talk uh, with you. And Jimmy, you know, when I researched it, I went, there's his life and his details. And then there's the heart of the guy. Yeah. And his heart is huge. Yeah. And I want people to understand that as well as love his music. Well, I got that feeling from the book. So you accomplished your goal. Great. Great. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Hey, you guys. Um, I'm here today with Brad Schreiber. Brad, tell everybody how to get in touch with you if they want to. Tell them about your books. Publicize yourself a little bit. Well, I will. Bradschreiber.com. Um, I'll also tell you, I love to communicate with folks who write me. And my next book is with Ron Stallworth, who wrote the book called Black Klansman okay. that became this Spike movie. He and I are doing a book about gangster rap lyrics, the identity of black people in a, in a white America, Neat. black lives matter, and um, a lot of related topics. Okay. So we're excited about that book, and Macmillan is going to probably publish it late next year. Nice. You'll have to come back and see us. That'll be great. That's Thank awesome. Yeah. I love it, Nancy. It's yeah. really great. Thank you. Well, hey, you guys, we've got to get out of here today. But this is Nancy Yearout. This is High Road to Humanity. And I hope you guys have a terrific week. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, you guys, join me next week on The High Road for more stories filled with wisdom, love, and hope for our future. Have a fabulous week and know that by staying on The High Road, you will make it to your destination. Visit my website, nancyyearout.com, where you can book a private session to learn how to tap into your own abilities. And check out my YouTube channel. It's Nancy Yearout's High Road to Humanity. You can achieve your goal.